All right, my friends, good morning to you. We're going to give this a shot. Uh, as you know, with uh, the coronavirus situation that is uh, kind of making its way through the United States, uh, increasingly recommendations have been made to, to limit the size of large gatherings. And so uh, we certainly want to honor that uh, and our, the request of our township officials. And, and so today we're, uh, we're doing church, if you will, uh, Separately yet together. And so we're gathering together via this video. I know Will earlier, uh, he gave you sort of a heads up on um, how this can kind of become a, an interactive experience for you. And, um, and I encourage you to take advantage of that. I also want to encourage you, much like you would on a Sunday morning, you, you designate some time, you put aside some time to, to come and to listen uh, to what the Lord would have through, for you through his word. I just want to encourage you, you know, put aside other things. Uh, if you're sitting there looking at your computer, turn off your email. If you're down in your living room, turn your TV off and try to minimize the distractions so that you can really just enter in uh, to what the Lord would have for you today. Uh, we are going to turn uh, in our Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, which we have been studying. And, and I'm excited about today's study uh, as I was digging into it this week um, because it's just a sweet look at a man uh, who cries out to the Lord, uh, and the Lord has time for him and hears him and heals him. Uh, and we all need that, certainly so. Um, so let's just uh, go before the Lord in prayer right now. Father, we do pray that uh, even in this uh, unusual circumstance for us, Lord, uh, where we are a church gathered together in uh, a few hundred different living rooms, uh, Lord, we do pray um, that your word would still be rich and alive in our hearts. And, and Lord, we do pray that you would help us, each of us, uh, to focus our heart, our mind, our time, um, our attention uh, on you and on your word. And, and that, Lord, you would bless that little effort on our part um, by coming and meeting with us and speaking to us. Lord, bless the time. Bless your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's funny, when I said amen, I was kind of waiting to hear the crowd say amen, but you're far away, you're at your house. So anyway, that being said, as I, as I mentioned, we are in Mark chapter 10. Today we're going to study uh, the account or the story here of uh, Jesus healing a man by the name of Bartimaeus. Um, I'll remind you of this if you look back in your Bibles at Mark chapter 10 verse 1. Jesus has just left the area, uh, you recall, the area of the Galilee, and he's making his way down to Jerusalem. Uh, these are the final weeks or the final month of Jesus's earthly life here, and all of chapter 10 is his interaction uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going, as we said, to Jerusalem that he might give his life and that he might be crucified. And so we have seen already in our study of chapter 10 where a bunch of little kids were being brought up to the Lord and the disciples, I think with a good heart, are trying to prevent that because Jesus shouldn't be distracted and Jesus deals with that. Um, we see the rich young ruler coming to the Lord and Jesus uh, responding to him in the way that he did in that interaction. Uh, and then we see, unfortunately, I think, that request of James and John to be uh, number one and number two in the kingdom, and, and how Jesus took that as an opportunity to teach them uh, about why he had come. Uh, and that classic, that theme verse, if you will, that I've quoted so many times during our study, uh, Matthew chapter 10, 45, saying, even, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, uh, but to serve. And so just sort of refining their thinking, correcting their thinking once again, 
um, which is going to be um, so very important when he's not on the scene. And these are the guys that are going to be leading uh, the work on the earth. Well, as we come now to uh, verse 46, uh, we see as it reads there in verse uh, 46, they came to Jericho. Now, Jericho was the last major city before Jerusalem. There was pretty much only one route to get to Jerusalem um, that all of those pilgrims would have been taking. Remember, Jesus is going to be crucified, but everybody else is going to Jerusalem as well because it's the, the feast of the Passover. And the Jewish expectation was, is if you were physically able to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, then you needed to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are going to be making their way to Jerusalem. And if you're coming from anywhere in north of Jerusalem, you're almost certainly going to pass through Jericho. That was the main way to get through, um, to get to Jerusalem. Uh, Jericho is about 15 miles away um, from Jerusalem, and it was the last major city prior to Jerusalem. So let me read this to you. It begins, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, Bartimaeus sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Now, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, we call those the synoptic gospels. Oftentimes the material that's found uh, in one of those gospels is almost always found in at least another one, and sometimes uh, all three of them, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is one of those instances where we have record uh, of Jesus's healing uh, of this blind man there in uh, the area of Jericho. Now, I will tell you this, uh, and I'll tell you, that's Matthew chapter 20, uh, 29 to 34, here in Mark chapter 10, and then also in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. Now, there are some commentators that think uh, they're separate instances, that Jesus healed multiple blind people while he was there in Jericho, uh, and the reason they come to that is in, I believe it's the Matthew passage and the Luke passage, it talks about there being two blind men. Uh, and in this Mark passage, it talks about one blind man and names him. Uh, but either way, he, we know Jesus encountered this fellow by the name of Bartimaeus. And he does so there in Jericho. Uh, fun fact, uh, Jericho is uh, sort of their little, you know how like we have... New Jersey, the Garden State, and we got those little like phrases. Uh, Jericho has a phrase of their own, two of them actually. One is that it's the oldest city in the world. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's what they call themselves. Uh, it is a continuously inhabited city by multiple peoples, but inhabited city um, for thousands of years. Uh, it's also called the City of Palms uh, because there's actually, that's from the book of Deuteronomy, I think chapter 34, verse 3 or something like that. Uh, it's referred to the city with all the palms. And so they call themselves the city of palms. You go there now, you see all these palm trees growing that they transplant and plant in other parts of Israel and other parts of the world. Um, so 
There you go. Now you know those fun facts here. Historians tell us that at the time of this account with Jesus, that Jericho was the most trafficked intersection in the world, quote unquote, and quote, that it was a hub of traffic between Europe to the north and Africa to the south. And so lots of people passed through Jericho on a regular basis. And again, as I commented earlier, that, that lots of people go there anyway, combined with the fact that it's Passover week or leading up to Passover meant that lots of people were going to be making their way through Jericho at this time. That makes it an ideal time for a guy like Bartimaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus, as we see, uh, was blind. Um, we're going to find out later on in our passage that he became blind because he says, I want to recover my sight. So he had sight at one point in time, um, but for whatever reason, he became blind. <coughs> Secondly, we see that he's a beggar. Uh, and as such, he's going to go where people are. He's going to set himself up where people are. And so this becomes an opportune time for him to go out to the main street of town, uh, the highway there of town, um, set himself up so that hopefully uh, he can uh, bring some resources back for himself uh, to provide for himself. You'll notice also Mark tells us his name, not only his name, but also his father's name. Look at verse 46. It says that there was a beggar. His name was Bartimaeus. And then he goes on to say that it was the son of Timaeus. Now, when you see that, there's a reason why, uh, for instance, we don't learn the name of the rich young ruler. Uh, we learn the name of this blind beggar. We learn the name of the blind beggar, or Mark includes the name of the blind beggar, because that's a, an indication that this is a fellow that would have been known some 20 years later to Mark's readers. That, that is, that this guy became a disciple of Jesus Christ, that his father became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that he would go on to follow the Lord. And so that's exciting. That's encouraging to see that not only was he impacted that day, but that that impact went on for many, many years into the future. Um, so with that, let's, uh, let's dig into this. I read the passage, uh, and you can continue to follow along there. As we go back to verse 46, we see that Jesus and his disciples, that they're leaving Jericho. So again, they come to Jericho, and as he's leaving the city with his disciples, that there's a great crowd, that a great crowd begins to follow the Lord. And that crowd, the way it's worded uh, and it's meant to be communicated, it's more than that there's just a lot of people in the streets. What, what Mark is trying to indicate is there's a lot of people in the streets that are pressing in on the Lord. They're, they're listening to the Lord. They're learning from the Lord and trying to get as near to him as possible as he makes his way out of that particular town. And the situation that we're seeing is like this, as lots of rabbis are making their way uh, to, um, to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, they, people would gather around them to learn from them. And so rather than stopping and sitting and teaching, what these rabbis would do is they would teach as they would go. And so they'd be walking along. We've seen examples of that with Jesus up in the Galilee region. Jesus is walking along, and he's no doubt teaching the people. So the crowd is pressing in on him so they can learn from him, they can hear him. And then as that's happening, uh, you got this guy who eventually starts yelling and screaming out. And I think it's one of the reasons why they're telling him to be quiet, because look, man, it's, the guy's teaching, and we can't hear when you, you're crying out here. And so you can imagine the scene. Bartimaeus sitting there on the side of the road. As is often the case, a person that uh, has 
uh, a diminished capacity in one of their faculties, oftentimes a different faculty gets stronger. And so he's unable to see, and no doubt, he's much uh, more aware of the things that he hears and the things that he listens to, probably much more so than the average individual. And so he's sitting there on the side of the road and he's hearing all of this commotion and it's different from normal. And so you can imagine he's turning to people, he's asking what's going on, how come this sudden influx of commotion, why is it louder, and people pressing more so than they typically do. And so he begins to inquire, and people begin to tell him, well, the rabbi from Galilee is here, Jesus is here. Uh, he, it's clear, as you look in verse 47, that he knows who Jesus is. He's heard of Jesus. He's no doubt thought about, you know, someday I want to go find this Jesus and so on. And now he hears Jesus is in town because you'll notice there in verse 27, it says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to cry out. So he knows who Jesus is. He's heard of Jesus before. That, that word cry out, it's one word in the original language, but the word, it means to cry with a loud voice. It literally, it means to scream. And so here's this guy on the side of the road. He hears this commotion. He, he's attentive to it. He begins to ask, what's going on? Why is everybody freaking out all of a sudden? They say, the rabbi from Galilee, Jesus is in town. He's passing through. And he now, uh, he being Bartimaeus, at the top of his voice, he begins to yell. He begins to scream. He begins to attempt to get Jesus's attention here. And I imagine a bit that Jesus is sort of you know, down the end of the block already uh, before uh, Bartimaeus is able to get the information as to who it actually is. And so he has to scream out uh, because Jesus is way down the end of the road. And he cries out, as you see here in 47, he says, son of David, have mercy on me. Cries out, screams, son of David, have mercy on me. He throws off, if you will, all measure of social decorum. Uh, he doesn't care what people think about him. Uh, if uh, it's embarrassing to most people, it's not going to be embarrassing to him. He exhibits no fear uh, in asking Jesus to come and help him because he has heard of this Jesus, he knows of this Jesus, and now's his opportunity. And so uh, he cries out to him, as we see, for mercy. You know, as I think about people that... Uh, are contemplating coming to the Lord. Many people choose not to come to the Lord for fear of what other people might think of them. This man didn't think that way. This man didn't care what other people thought of him because he knew that the Lord could do a work in his life and he wasn't going to let anyone prevent him from doing that work in my life. Many people neglect coming to the Lord because they're afraid of what their friends are going to think about them if they now get serious about God. Many people neglect coming to the Lord because they're afraid of how their coworkers or their colleagues are going to respond. Some people don't come to the Lord because they're afraid of what their parents are going to say or maybe what a spouse is going to say. What we learn from this fellow here, and this man, he is such an example to us of what it means to come to the Lord in faith. What we learn from him is this, is that he was a man who needed help and Jesus was the one that could bring him that help. And so he was not going to let anything stop him from getting to the Lord. And so he cries out. Now you look at verse 48, it says, and many rebuked him. Now that's a significant word as well, because the word rebuke there, it means to censure severely or to charge sharply. 
And so this isn't some little light, shh, now you be quiet now. This is a shut up. Don't talk. Nobody wants to hear from you. Be quiet. You're bothering us and others. They, they rebuke him, uh, we read here. But you'll see, what does the man do? He cries out all the more. He cries out even more, even louder. As the crowd tried to silence Bartimaeus, he was not going to have any of it. Because Bartimaeus was a desperate man, and he was determined to come to Jesus in that desperation. And he, he determined, I'm not going to allow anyone to take this chance that I have to interact with the Lord to stop me, regardless of how much uh, they, he might be embarrassed, how much they might be embarrassed by having him, no matter, regardless of how annoyed they may be with him, he wasn't going to let his opportunity uh, to, to pass away. Because Jesus is passing through, and when he does, Bartimaeus is the one who's going to still be blind. Uh, not those people. And Bartimaeus, look, look, man, you could do whatever you want, but I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get the attention of Jesus here. And so verse 48, as it says, he cries out even more. He yells even louder. We could translate that. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Typically, what did the man beg for? He, he begged for some spare change, maybe some food. Today, he's crying out for, he's begging for mercy. And what's significant about that is it shows us this man is looking for more than just some temporal things uh, in his life here. He's crying out for mercy. Mercy is something that no one ever deserves. Nobody deserves mercy. It's part of the definition, the meaning of the word here. This man, he comes to the Lord completely in need, knowing that he doesn't deserve to be healed, but asking to be healed Nonetheless, he cries out to the Lord to show him mercy. And you'll notice in doing so that he calls him, he calls Jesus the son of David. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus was referred to in a number of different ways. Sometimes he was called rabbi. Sometimes he was called master. Sometimes he was called the son of David. He often referred to himself as the son of man. The son of David, that one of those terms, is a messianic title. Uh, it goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, and in calling Jesus the son of David, what Bartimaeus is doing is he's making a statement of faith about the Lord. And so we could translate this verse here when it says, son of David, have mercy on me. We could translate it. This is what's going on in Bartimaeus's mind. Messiah, have mercy on me. He was acknowledging who he thought Jesus to be, that he was the Messiah. Now, what I'll point out to you, though, is that that phrase, the son of David, consistently brought to the, the person speaking it the connotation of a Messiah that was going to rule and to reign just as David, the son of David, just as David did. And so the scenario that we have here is Bartimaeus is crying out to Jesus as the Messiah, but as a particular type of Messiah, the one that was going to go to Jerusalem to rule and to reign. And as we've been looking in our study of the book of Mark, this is what Jesus has been consistently dealing with his disciples about, is that they sort of put aside this idea of him ruling and reigning, and they're ruling and reigning with him, and instead take on this idea of him coming to give his life as a ransom for them. You see, in the Old Testament, there are plenty of prophecies that point to the Messiah as the long-awaited conquering king. And the Jewish people, they were looking for the long-awaited conquering king. 
The son of David would be the term to kind of describe that. But we also see in the scriptures is that the, there are prophecies of the Messiah coming to, to suffer and to give his life and uh, to be that suffering servant, as he's uh, denoted in certain places there. And so Jesus is trying to get that into the mind of his disciples. But what we see here with Bartimaeus is he has in his mind this reigning king that's going to come and is going to rule. And so he cries out to the Lord. Now, I bring it up because of this. Bartimaeus comes to the Lord in faith, but frankly, it's not a perfect faith. He comes to the Lord for healing. He comes to the Lord for mercy. He acknowledges that the Lord is the Messiah and that he can do something in his life, but he doesn't get all of the theology correct. He doesn't have this full understanding of Jesus coming to suffer and to die on a cross, but you'll notice he still comes. And I think there's a lot of people that stop, they're thinking about coming to the Lord, but they don't have all the answers and they don't know everything about everything. And so they sort of put the brakes on everything and they just sort of stop. Here we see an example of a guy who comes. And I want to encourage you, if you're watching this and you don't yet know the Lord, you've been thinking about the things of the Lord, but you don't have all of the answers, that doesn't mean you just stop and throw it out. It doesn't mean you stop and you don't go forward. You continue to move forward and Jesus will reveal things to you as he needs to reveal those things to you. But you come to him in faith nonetheless. That's what this man does. Now we go on in verse 49, Jesus stops and he says, call the man, call him. And so they call the blind man and they say, take heart, get up. He is calling to you. Now remember, where's Jesus going? Jesus is going to Jerusalem. What's Jesus going to Jerusalem for? He's going to Jerusalem to give his life, to die on the cross, to save the world from their sins by paying the price of their sins. This was the very reason why Jesus had left his place in heaven to come to this earth. That's a great work, wouldn't you say? Certainly so. Nobody answered me. You're at home sitting on your couch. Um, But I imagine you're nodding your head right now. That is a great work. And yet notice, Jesus is willing to be interrupted, even if you will, in that great work to deal with this man. Because Jesus Christ came, as he said in verse 45, he came to serve, not to be served. And here was a man that was in need of his service. And so Jesus, notice there in 49, I've underlined this in uh, in my notes here, Jesus stopped. Here was a man in need and Jesus stops for him. I think sometimes people, they don't come to the Lord or they stop themselves from coming to the Lord because they see themselves and their needs as so minor in the grand scheme of things. You know, God's got so many other things he needs to worry about. He doesn't need to be worrying about little old me. Here we have an example, Jesus coming to do the greatest of tasks, give his life um, for our sin, and he's willing to be interrupted and stopped to care for an individual, this blind beggar, the man Bartimaeus. And as we see there, he says, call the man. And as they do, they call him. We read that the man throws off his cloak, springs up, and he comes to Jesus. So very important. Again, this man is an example to us of what it means or what it looks like to come to God in faith. This man immediately responds to Jesus's call. Jesus calls for him to come, And it says he sprang up or springs up or sprang up to do just that. Again, a lesson for us in the exercise of faith, because how many people hear the call of the Lord to come and then convince themselves that someday they will do just that? 
They hear the call of Jesus, but in, in effect, what they say is, you know what, I'll respond to his call after I have done this thing or after I have done that thing. You know, so I think of the teenager that determines, you know what, they're going to respond to the Lord after they get out of high school or the college student that thinks similarly about the time when they graduate uh, from, from that college or the young unmarried professional who tells themselves, you know what, I'm going to settle down once I get married or perhaps the business professional uh, that first wants to climb the corporate ladder or the young married couple once they have kids or the couple with kids once the kids are grown or the empty nesters once they retire. And again and again and again, we see these scenarios where the delay goes on and on and on. And you put off God, the work that God wants to do in your life or worse, because of the delay, the desire passes altogether and a person never finds himself desiring the things of the Lord again. Sadly, I think we have a habit of putting off until tomorrow those things that the Lord is calling us into today. And that's not just in the area of coming to the Lord in sort of that initial salvation experience. And so many of us watching today, the Lord might be calling us to an area in which we need to step out in faith and we keep putting it off. He might be calling us to an area of greater obedience, and we keep putting it off. He might be calling us to forsake an area of sin, and we put it off. This man, he heard the call, and he immediately responds to the call. And I'll point out to you, it's a very good thing he did, isn't it? Because as we know, Jesus never returned back through Jericho as one might have expected. I mean, how easy it would have been for Bartimaeus to reason, well, Jesus is way down at the end of the road. I'll just catch him next week when he returns back this way from Passover. Because as we know, the scripture makes it clear, he does not pass that way after Passover. He gives his life there. This is the opportunity for the man. As the scripture says in multiple places, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. And because Bartimaeus acted with promptness, he, because he threw off his garment and he made his way as quickly as possible to the Lord, he was healed. He throws off his cloak. Now that word, that cloak there that he throws off, it was almost certainly his only possession or maybe one of his very, very few possessions. And he leaves it behind, he throws it off so that he can get to the Lord. You know, I think there's a a great co um, contrast here, juxtaposition here with what we read about in verse 17 of our passage of chapter 10. That's where we read about the rich young ruler. And you recall Jesus essentially said to him, put aside all of your possessions and come follow me. And the man, it said, went away very sad. Here is Bartimaeus doing the same thing, putting aside at the very least one of his few possessions, if not his only possession, putting it aside so that he could get to the Lord because he was determined not to allow anyone or anything, even this cloak, to prevent him from getting to the Lord as quickly as possible. There's one other important point about this cloak. In that day, they, uh, a beggar's cloak would be denoted in a certain way um, by sort of 
the, the colors that were sort of sewn into the cloak, they were designated, this is a beggar. This is a person recognized by the officials of our community uh, that has no other way to make a living for themselves. And so, you know, you, somebody asks you for money, you're like, how do I know you're not going to spend it on such and such? Uh, it was sort of the approval of the government that this was a legitimate beggar. And so this garment that he leads aside, leaves aside was his license, if you will, to be able to beg uh, there in the street. And so you'll notice Jesus calls him, what does he do with that garment? He leaves it aside. He keeps it, he leaves it back where it is so that he can get to the Lord because that cloak that he is a blind man used for begging, he's confident and knows that he'll no longer need that cloak any longer because he's not going to be a blind man. He, he already knows that Jesus is going to do a healing work within him and he's expecting the Lord to do that healing work within him. And so he leaves his cloak behind. Now he gets to the Lord. The Lord says to him, what do you want me to do for you? I, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure of the significance, but you recall when the disciples, uh, John and James, they approach the Lord and they want Jesus to make them number one and number two in the kingdom. They come to the Lord to ask of him. They say to him, Lord, we want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. And Jesus's response to them is, what do you want me to do for you? Word for word, the same thing that he says now to this man, Bartimaeus, Interesting, they come with very different quote-unquote needs. Bartimaeus needs his sight. And so Jesus cries out to him, or he says to him, what do you want me to do? And as I think about that, once again, I remind, remind myself, doesn't Jesus know what Bartimaeus needs? In, certainly in the supernatural, doesn't he know? And probably even in the natural. You and I, if this blind fellow came up to us, we would know what it is that he would need. But Jesus asks him anyway. He says to him, what is it you want me to do for you? Because he wants Bartimaeus to articulate what it exactly it is that he is looking for. He knows, but he wants Bartimaeus to make it known. And for Bartimaeus, if you will, to make a public confession of his need as he comes to the Lord for his mercy. Bartimaeus knows immediately what he wants to ask for. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Rabbi, I want to see again. And Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Immediately, the man is healed, and immediately he's once more able to see. He recovers, as it says there, his sight. Now, as we're bringing this to a close, you'll notice Jesus says to him, go your way. Now, notice, the man essentially responds, you're my way now. He says, go your way. And what Bartimaeus does, the only logical thing there was for him to do, he began to follow the Lord. So Bartimaeus doesn't leave here and go selfishly on his way and, and do whatever it is. My need's been met. See you, Jesus. Bye-bye. Kind of thing. Uh, he continues to walk where the Lord would walk. It says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Verse 52 continues. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. And in that, Bartimaeus now is an excellent example for us of a person that comes to the Lord in faith, but then continues in the Lord in faith. Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. I just want to take a couple of minutes to address this, because there's a lot of ideas that are sort of floating around the Christian church, the Christian community, on the internet and other places about this idea of faith and this idea of healing. And so as I gave that some thought this week, a number of different questions came to my mind. Number one is this, does God still heal today? I think the answer, a category, un, 
Unequivocally, the answer is yes, God still heals. At the same time, we acknowledge that not everyone that petitions the Lord for physical healing is miraculously healed, just as not everyone in the Bible that needed healing was miraculously healed. Does God still heal today? Absolutely. Is everyone necessarily miraculously healed? No. Second question that I came up with as I was thinking through this is, well, what role does faith play in a person's healing? And similarly, are those that are not healed lacking in faith? Well, as we see here, Jesus clearly says to this man, your faith has made you well. Therefore, we know that faith plays some part in the process of divine healing. In the book of James, we read this. James taught us that we have not because we ask not. And so there's at least some measure of faith being necessary for healing. But the lack of healing is never an indicator in the scripture of a lack of faith or the quality of a person's faith. And many of us, we can look back in the history of the church, maybe even to the lives of people that we know, there are some with great faith that are not healed, while others with just a small amount of faith are. And it reminds us that God decides when and God decides who he will heal according to his will and according to his wisdom. And in some cases, it's not his will to bring about physical healing in a person's life. Third question that came to my mind is this, why isn't everyone healed? It kind of is on the, the, the heels of that last statement. Well, why isn't it God's will that everyone would be healed? Why wouldn't God want to heal certain people? Well, as hard as it may be for us to fathom, it is not always God's will to heal a person. Because sometimes God's blessings come in ways other than physical healing. I think uh, if you want to do a little further reading on this, pick up a biography um, written by Johnny Erickson Tata. She's written a number of different works. Some are devotional in nature. Some are just biographies or autobiographies there. And she'll address this particular issue. Johnny Erickson Tata is uh, an older woman now in her late 60s, but as a young woman in her late teen years, uh, became a quadriplegic as a result of a diving accident, diving into uh, a lake, uh, and she hit her head, broke her neck. And she cried out to the Lord again and again and again that he would heal her. And God began to do a work within her and do a greater work than a physical healing would have brought to her. And she writes about it. She talks about it. Uh, and I think it's very powerful because there's somebody in the midst of it um, who can explain these things. Pick that up for you. Uh, we'll make uh, her name available to you. The spelling's a little bit unique. So we'll make it available to you so that you can Google search it here. So sometimes God's blessing comes in ways other than physical healing. Additionally, we know this, if it was God's will for people to be healed, then everyone would be healed every time he or she became ill. And if perfect health were always God's will, then Christians, it stands to reason, would never die. And obviously that's not the case. And so though it may not seem to be the case, healings in the Bible, they're actually pretty rare. If you look in the early pages of the Bible, the first 2,500 years of biblical history, there's no mention at all of physical healings. Now, there was certainly an uptick during the time of Christ and even in the early years of uh, the apostles in the book of Acts. But remember, the book of Acts is 28 chapters that cover a period of about 30 years. And so that's on average, if you will, one chapter per year uh, or one healing per year. And so do I think that God can and does heal today? Absolutely. And I do think that we should pray our prayers in faith that he would bring healing to those that need healing. However, does God 
uh, always heal or does God heal? I don't think that's the proper question. I think the proper question is, is it God's will to heal in this particular instance? Is this God's will? And like Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, take this cup from me, but if it not be your will, you know, let me accept that. Let me receive that. Final question this morning as it pertains to this concept of healing is, if I've asked God to heal me, or maybe my brother, my sister, somebody that I care for, when should I, and he hasn't yet, when should I stop asking for healing? Well, quite simply, you should stop asking for healing when God tells you to stop asking for healing. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, everyone who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now there's an interesting thing there in the original language there uh, and in the tense that it was written. The tense that it was written speaks of a continual action. And so we read it as ask, uh, and everyone who asks, receives, seek, everyone who seeks, finds, and so on. And it gives sort of this idea, this impression that you ask one time and then you stop asking. But because it's written in the original language in this continual tense, what it means is, and the way that it might be worded, is everyone who keeps asking and keeps seeking and keeps knocking will receive, will find, and will open. And so if you've sought the Lord for healing in a particular area of your life or for a matter in your life, you've gone before the Lord to pray, the admonition of scripture is to keep seeking him for an answer to that prayer. You recall in, uh, in the writings of the apostle Paul, that he kept asking the Lord for healing as it pertained to a matter that he called a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know exactly what it was, but it was some kind of an ailment um, that was troubling him and causing him difficulty. And he went before the Lord. We read this in 2 Corinthians 12. It says that a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now notice it said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me, leave me. And so some will say, if you ask the Lord for something, and then you come back and ask him again for that same thing, that's, that's sort of disrespectful on your part, and it lacks faith. But we see that Paul came back to the Lord again and again and again about this particular matter. Now, when does Paul stop going back to the Lord about this particular matter? When the Lord essentially says to him, stop petitioning me about this particular matter, he, because my will for you is something else. Again, looking at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, it says, uh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so previously, God's standard instruction to Paul as a follower of Christ was to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Now his instruction to Paul is to stop asking me on this matter. My grace is going to be sufficient for you. You're going to maintain this weakness to keep you from boasting. So when should you stop asking for the Lord about a certain matter? When he tells you to stop asking him. And should he tell you to stop asking about a particular matter, the same message that he gave to Paul is what he gives to you and I. And that is this, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. And so we have this fellow Bartimaeus, a sweet brother in the Lord uh, for us to look at, uh, that we observe, that serves as this wonderful example of what it means to come to the Lord in faith. He was a blind man, yet despite his infirmity, that did not prevent him from seeing who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And so he comes to the Lord. 
Here are a few lessons that I think we learned from Bartimaeus. Number one, this one. Not only did this man know who Jesus was, but what Jesus could do. <coughs> Secondly, here is a man determined to connect with the Lord. You recall in 48, he cried out all the more, despite the efforts of others to dissuade him from doing so. Next, we see that he is a man who came humbly to Jesus Christ. He came to Jesus not expecting that Jesus had to do something for him, but crying out to the Lord for his mercy. We see that also in verse 48. Next, we see that his was a faith that could articulate to the Lord exactly what it was longing for. He searched out his heart to find out what he was longing for. He doesn't go to the Lord. The Lord says, what do you want me to do for you? And he stops and thinks, well, let's see how you could help me. He knows what he wants the Lord to do in his life. He wants the Lord to help him recover his sight. And he comes expectant to the Lord to do just what he asks. As we said, he throws off his cloak. Finally, he doesn't use Jesus simply to accomplish his temporal desire, but he's all in on following Jesus and making Jesus's way his own way. I love this account of Jesus's interaction with Bartimaeus. I think it gives us hope, even unto today, for the many around us that are physically not just physically blind, I should say, not just physically needy, but are uh, even more significantly are spiritually blind and spiritually needy. And we see, what do we take from it? Jesus cares about such a one. Jesus has time for such a one. And Jesus is willing to bring healing to such a one. And as you watch this sitting there in your house or on your phone or something like that, as you watch this today, if that describes you, if today you recognize that you're, you have a great need for a savior, and maybe you're sitting there wondering, would he hear me? Would he listen to me? Would he stop for me? I want to encourage you, come, find the healing that you're longing for. Maybe it is a physical healing. Maybe it's just a spiritual healing. Or not, I shouldn't even say just. Maybe it's a spiritual healing that you need. Come to the Lord. Contact us. You'll notice you have the the opportunity there on whatever platform you're watching to send in your thoughts, send in your comments. You can email us. We'd love to interact with you and dialogue with you if that describes you. But Jesus wants you to come to him. Amen.